Amen. Well, you may be seated again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. And that means that we believe that we exist to make disciples of Jesus Christ who love God and who love people. And so uh, my name is Chris. I'm the lead uh, pastor here. And if you're new, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. Um, If you like the sermon, you can go back and listen to some old sermons online. If you don't like the sermon, that's great because I'm going to be gone for the next like three months um, on sabbatical. And so there'll be other preachers and teachers in here and and, uh, super excited for that. Um, But what we're going to do today is we're going to finish our series that we started um, uh, back at the uh, like first winter, um, as we worked our way through the three or four winters to what I believe might be spring now, um, in the book of First Peter, called Rooted, Living Scattered, Not Shattered. And we said that in this series that um, when we get to the storms of life, we find out that sometimes our roots are too shallow or that we are rooted in ground um, that, is, um, that is not going to be ultimately nourishing and fruitful. And so uh, like, like current events start hitting us, uh, whether big in the world or individual in our lives, uh, and, and we can get crushed easily. We can, get, we can wither easily. And, and we need to be rooted in what is real and true and eternal. And so we've said this whole series that when we are rooted in that which is transcendent, then we can endure and not be reactive to the temporary. And so that's a, that's a great statement, but like, like what does that look like? So as we come to the, the end of First Peter here, you can turn your Bibles if you have them um, to First Peter chapter five. Um, and today's we're gonna be in verses six all the way till the end. Um, and we'll just kind of pick up with where we left off at the end of last week, where, where Peter was talking about rooted leadership and what that looks like in the life of the church. And then he said, hey, for, for the people who are the elect exiles, for those who are scattered in a world that is that is a bit hostile to the gospel, that we're, where we're really not home yet, and yet we do have roots in these places and these spaces. How are we going to navigate that? And he says um, in verse 6 and 7, by way of recap from last week, he says this, chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he might exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And so we, if we're gonna endure and not be reactive, we have to start with a disposition for all of us. He was speaking not just to the leaders, but the members and everybody in, in between. He said, all of us have to have a, a culture and a disposition of humility so that we um, can be understanding that God is the one who's ultimately our authority. Like, it's great that I really appreciate Garrett praying for me. Like, our church has a way better leader than me. Our church has Jesus Christ. Our church has the Holy Spirit. Our church has the Holy Spirit working in and through us individually and together as a group of people. Our church has a whole bunch of other churches scattered all around the region and, and the country and the world. And so, uh, and all of those, he says, are under God's mighty hand. And that might sound like oppressive, but what it actually is, is, is talking about God's freedom. That, that when God's people were um, in slavery in Egypt, the term that was used by, to show God's power to bring his people out of that slavery out of idolatry, out of oppression, into a journey that would lead to a promised land was God using his mighty hand. So as Peter is telling these people, hey, be humble under God's mighty hand 
He's already talking about a path that will lead ultimately to life and glory. That submitting to and being under God's authority actually does lead to joy. That, that, that humility doesn't lead to humiliation. Right? We don't like humility because we worry about going to humiliation and shame. But in fact, here he says the path is humility will ultimately lead to, in Christ, exaltation. So what that can look like or what that should look like is that as Christians who follow a Jesus who, who humbled himself to live on the earth, who submitted to God obediently to the point of death on the cross, who was buried and then rose and is reigning and will return means that as we follow that Jesus, then we will follow a path that is similar that goes from cross to crown. That we have our seasons of cross, but our destination is crown. And yet I think most of us want the crown without the cross. But that, that's just not what we're called to, right? We, we live in a world that is not yet perfect. We live in a world that has uh, sin. We, we <laughs> I, have sin, right? And so as we think about engaging with that, what he's calling us to in these verses is to both let go and hold tight. So that, that sounds counterintuitive, right? Let go and hold tight. Well, what are we letting go of? He says, no, no, you're gonna let go of your anxiety. We say this often, I'll say it again today. Rest is a gift given when a burden is given over. And so we're all called to, to unburden ourselves to the Lord, to, to actually give him our anxiety, give him our pain, give him our suffering, give him that which worries us, that which we normally take and, and press down and bottle up, and, and God and the Holy Spirit reaches into our hearts and says, hey, that bottle of suffering and sorrow and that ball of anxiety that you are about everything with every doom scroll you make, he said, no, no, Take the, you want to bottle it up? That's great. I will take that bottle. I'm going to set it up over here. And you don't have to worry about that anymore. And he gives the reason. Because I'm the one that's ultimately in charge, he says. Because of God's mighty hand. And, and that mighty hand, that hand of power, that hand of authority, like, it, it, like that is a characteristic of God that, that also includes the fact, the explicit words right here in verse seven. Why do we give him our anxiety? Why can we trust him with his mighty hand? Because he cares for us. Our God knows our pain. God knows your sorrow. God knows what worries you. He says, I will take that. You unburden yourself and know that I care for you. And so that's, that's the letting go. The, the, the letting go is important, but there's also a bit of holding on tight. That we actually are holding on to what is true about who God is. We're holding on to the gospel that, that as, as the world swirls and shifts around us with just great in, in insanity, that we would be rooted people, and that in being rooted, it would lead to what we call being resolved, that Christ is for us, that he is our champion. So we can be people who are, yes, rooted, but rooted leads to being resolved. And so we need to have both. And so I, I wanna use a term today. I, I don't know that I coined it, so I, don't, I won't uh, take credit for it. But, but this resolved, if I was gonna define it, it would be this. A humble gospel confidence. 
A humble gospel confidence to be resolved is to endure being uncomfortable for a greater reward later. And we can do that through humility. We can do that with joy in in the good news of the gospel. And we can do that with confidence that our strength doesn't come from us. It comes from Jesus Christ. It comes through the Holy Spirit. And so while we are rooted in Christ and we're living scattered in the world, we're resolved that we will not be shattered even in the face of great resistance, great evil, or even in our own fear, weakness, and despair. I want us to have a disposition of being rooted, yes, being rested, absolutely, but to not forget to be resolved. And so, how do, we, how do we do that? Why would we need to be resolved? I mean, he, he says he cares for us. Like, what, what, what are, what's at stake? What are, what are some of the challenges we're gonna face? Well, that, that gets us into these next verses here, verses eight and nine say this. So in light of that humble disposition, that in light of trusting God and his power, trusting God and his character of compassion for us, saying give, give him your anxiety and hold on. Hold on in this way, he says, verse eight and nine. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Verse nine, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, there's four things I want us to look at in this section of scripture real quick. Number one, we are called to resist a real enemy. So um, I, I, it's probably from some terrible movie from years ago, but one of the, one of the greatest lies the devil ever told was to get, convince us that he doesn't exist. Okay, I don't want us to be fearful people. I don't want us to be terrified. I don't want us to see a demon or a devil around at every corner, but we have to acknowledge the reality that there is opposition to flourishing in the world. We all get the concept of evil. We all get the concept of, of war, of sin, of, of brokenness. And in the face of the opposition to flourishing is where and when we're called to, to be resolved. That, that we recognize that, that, that you're just not home yet. Like, Lord willing, that today's gonna be a great day. I mean, there's a team of folks that's prepared a barbecue. There's even a bouncy house out there for the kids. For the kids, guys, okay? Like it's gonna be a, like we're gonna have fun today. We're gonna enjoy God's creation. And you're gonna have days in your life you're like, that was a good day. And as good as that day is, you're not home yet. And that's good news because when there's the bad days, when there's the suffering, when there's the challenges, you can say, thank goodness I'm not home yet. So the devil, Satan, whatever, is a spiritual being who has rejected God and is actively opposed to his rule and reign. And let's just be like really blunt and honest about this. Like that means like there's a spiritual battle that goes on inside of us, but there's also one going on collectively and in the world. And so the answer for that is to recognize that there's a real enemy. And as time marches on, there's gonna be increasing pressure to compromise or to capitulate to a world and a culture that's opposed to God. Some of you are from other parts of the country and you grew up and everybody was a Christian or everybody went to church. If you grew up here in the Northwest, we're not a post-Christian area, right? Like you look at East, uh, Western Europe rather and you're like, oh, they're post-Christian because they used to be you know, three, four generations ago. Now they're post-Christian. 
No, here in the Pacific Northwest, we were never Christian, right? Like if you're in Texas, Meemaw took you to church, here Meemaw's a Wiccan, okay? Right, that's how it goes here in the Northwest, right? So there, there, there wasn't a, was a bunch of large flourishing churches all over the place where every good person goes to church on Sunday. There's some cultural uh, uh, you know, credit for, for being a Christian. We've never had that in the Northwest in my lifetime. And, and, and I just, I'm gonna tell you, it's not going to get easier. So let's not pretend it ever was or that it's going to. That there's gonna be constant pressure in our world wherever you are. So I know some of y'all are going to Florida. At some point, the pressure will get there too or it's just gonna be so human hot, you're gonna believe in hell for sure, right? And we'll be like, it's August here. It's finally 68 degrees. Okay, room temp, room temp, yeah? Room temp summer, that's what we're all rooting for, room temp summer. Now let's not pretend it's ever gonna be easy. There's always gonna be pressure to call good evil and evil good. And so I just don't ever want us to be naive or unaware. I think what Peter's doing here is he's calling them like, yes, God is for you. He's got a mighty hand. Give him your anxiety, but don't be naive about the conditions you find yourself in. He says two things, two instructions, if you will. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. So this is the second part. So one is resist a real enemy, Okay, there's a real enemy to flourishing. Number two is be sober-minded, be watchful. So what he's calling us to and calling you to is some spiritual engagement to actually consider your spiritual life, to give God your anxiety and fear and give God our spiritual life, to, to actually maybe, maybe give God some spiritual, intentional attention. That's where I'm talking about the letting go and holding tight. Let go of your anxieties and have your attention held tightly by the Lord. That you actually consider spiritual things. To be sober-minded means to use clear judgment. Yeah, we've been hurt. Yeah, we've suffered. And when we've suffered pain or we've suffered abuse or we've suffered broken relationships and we've endured some things at certain points, then when a little pain point happens again and those scabs and those wounds haven't healed, we get incredibly reactionary. I was talking with my counselor and coach at the beginning of this week in kind of preparation for this next season of sabbatical. And I said, you know, hey, there's times I just kind of feel like I'm a bit reactionary to what's happening in the world. And he says, we are living in a very reactionary world, right? We love hot takes. We love mean tweets. We we love quick incendiary headlines. We're like, oh man, this this horrible thing happened. It must be exactly like this. We don't like to be sober-minded. Take a minute, step back. Let's let this story unfold a moment. Let's actually process what's going on in the world and not just have our anxiety and our reaction driven by by headlines and posts. That you might need to just take a breath. You might need to take a minute or a day. Or you might need to say, hey, I don't think I can respond to this right now until like, like my rage settles down and I can sober up, if you will that we're called to engage with a peaceful and settled presence, not the reactionary presence of the world. He goes on to say that we need to be watchful. That's like another word we use too often, watchful. Translates a couple different ways. It's talking about the idea really of alertness. It also can mean to, to be awake. 
And so it's having some awareness and, and being awoken to what's going on. You could even say, if you wanted to, uh, to be woke in a spiritual battle, right? To, to actually like, okay, my eyes are attentive. I'm aware of what's going on around me. I'm aware of what's going on in my soul. I'm aware of how the others are reacting around me to what's going on. I'm awake, I'm woke to a spiritual battle. Yeah, I know, I'm a 42-year-old white guy that just said woke, okay? We'll move on, all right. To be awake in the spiritual battles. Yeah, in the world. Like, that's fine. Really easy for us to diagnose. Oh, that person, I can tell they're dealing with this. Or these guys over here, oh, they're reactive there. Where he's really calling us to be most awake and attentive is to the battle that's going on in our individual souls. You cannot control the spiritual condition of people around you. We are called to engage and be intentional in our own spiritual condition. And so, to be aware, like I said, that there's a battle. Yeah, culture, government, that's fine, all those things. But I want you to ask yourself, in your own heart, how are you reacting? How are you engaging? See, the verses we'll look at in a second, or looked at here, said, Peter doesn't say the devil's looking around to devour the church, although he'd take it if he could. It says the devil's prowling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. So the resistance is an individual call given to a group of people. That you individually are called to resist. That the devil's looking for a, someone to devour, to deceive, to discourage. And so there's, there's that, right? Be sober-minded, be watchful. But I don't want us to do this mistake. To mistake being alert for being alarmed. You get the difference? You're, you're alert means you're aware of what's going on. You can see what's going on. Alarm is, this is terrible. This is, you know, like the constant state of just overwhelming anxiety from moving from alarm to alarm to alarm. And it's, it will just exhaust you. It is exhausting. There are times always called to be alert, not always called to, to be in constant alarm. It's to avoid what one commentary uh, a commentator called a spiritual drowsiness, where you just kind of, you know, you kind of lose focus on spiritual things, when and where things are reacting to the world, and, 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 or this, you find yourself reacting to things in the world exactly the way the world is reacting. See, we're called to be people of hope. We're called to be people of love, of compassion, people who have a, a hope that's beyond our circumstances, who can weep with those who weep, who are called to, to mercy and justice, to grace and truth. So if you see the whole world reacting one way to one thing, maybe, again, take a pause and ask yourself what's true. Am I reacting exactly the way the world does? And then you can ask yourself this, where do you need to be more awake or more alert or attentive to your spiritual life? Where are you so frustrated or blinded with pain or rage, sometimes the same thing, or fear or grief that you need to be able to have clear eyes, to be sober-minded so you can engage, rooted, resolved, peacefully? All right, so first is resist a real enemy. Second is be sober-minded and watchful. Third is the fact that he calls the devil a lying lion. 
that there is a real spiritual evil that seeks to devour our lives, that the, the, the word devil or Satan, um, it just stands for a spiritual being in direct opposition to God and leading other demons likewise. And so I know that sounds kind of creepy, but you're like, okay, it's not just, hey, there's evil spirituality. It's like this is a primary, like, like you know, he's a regional manager, right, of demons. This is bad news. Um, the word is similar to one that translates, though, accuser or slanderer. So the way that the devil or Satan or evil is working against God is through accusing and slandering. And so Jesus actually calls Satan the father of lies. And from the beginning, he has fed lies to God's people about God's love, about God's purposes, about God's justice, about how God deals with sin, about God being for us, about God's um, design and him holding back on, uh, on us. Like, I mean, he's just lie after lie after lie. And, and I think one of the ways that the enemy's lies are most crazy making is, is we try to make them logically make sense at some point, and yet we just end up with these insane contradictions that I do believe are lies from the enemy. Lie number one, and this goes all the way to the beginning of the Bible, you're enough. You are enough. You just need to know yourself a little bit better. You're enough. And so we think, I mean, like, yeah, we're made in the image of likeness of God. We can take a little gospel truth with that. They're like, you're made with dignity. You're made with respect and honor. And, and like, like, like you're, you're not just this, this like, like bag of a nasty soul. You're a person. You're an embodied soul that God has a design and a purpose for. So, so we, we take that, but then we switch tracks just a little bit to, to not, I've been made enough by God, or God has something for me, to I'm enough. And then we actually start to live out that way and we start to put the pressure of the world on us. And maybe it's our relationships, maybe it's in our careers, maybe it's in our own like sense of self-worth or, or self-care, uh, if you will, and we start to, to put that on our shoulders and invariably we begin to carry more weight than we were ever intended to carry because I'm enough, I'm enough, I'm enough as we're just getting crushed by our own expectations, by the expectations of others, by our own sin and brokenness. Like, like you know, you're enough. Yeah, but, but it denies the fact that actually, yeah, but we also have sin in us. And, and, and then what happens, right? You fail. You fail others. You fail yourself. Maybe in sin you fail the Lord. And now that crushing weight has crushed you and you believe the lie that you're enough. And now the enemy comes in with another lie. You're irredeemable. You're condemned. There's no grace for you. There's no mercy for you. There's no growth or change or transformation for you. There's no healing for you. It's crazy making. Father of lies, lying lion, gaslighter of gaslighters. That is what the enemy does. Jesus says he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But Jesus, but Jesus, he comes to give life and to give it abundantly. And so what that means is we can actually be honest about our sin because Jesus paid for it on the cross when we take communion. In, in, in a few minutes, right? Like, like we're gonna remember that Jesus sacrificed for us, his body broken for us, his blood shed for us. So we can be honest about our sin. 
We can be humble about our need for growth. We can be serious about our future and, 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 and what lies maybe that we've believed. And so with Jesus, I mean, we have hope. And so I want you to ask yourself, what lies about yourself have you begun to believe? Maybe it's not that you're enough. Maybe it's that you're irredeemable. Maybe it's that you're now defined by your wounds rather than by his wounds. Maybe it's that healing's not possible. Maybe it's that forgiveness isn't possible. Maybe it's that bitterness must take root as opposed to fruitfulness. What lies are you believing about your sin? You don't have any? You never have anything to repent of? Or that you've sinned somehow so big that the cross of Christ isn't big enough to cover it? That God's mercy and grace isn't greater than your sin? Now that's a lie. His mercy is more. What lies are you believing? See, it says here that the devil's a roaring lion. And I love that he's characterized that way. And a lion is prowling around, seeking someone to devour, he says, uh, to pick off a part of the herd of the flock. And so he looks for those who are alone, who are bitter, who are isolated, who are weak, who are angry, who are hurting, who are scared, who are not part of the flock, but have distanced themselves from the flock. Not running with the herd, if you will. There are times that it's time to change churches. There are times that it's time to, that communities are, are not healthy, right? All those things like that. There are times when there's abuse within the church, all those things. Okay, set that like, like aside for a moment. Because yeah, go ahead and flee. Go ahead and run. Go ahead and change. But I also want to be clear about this. Spiritual isolation from God's people is not profitable to lead to enduring in the face of a real adversary. We don't always need to flee, he says. Here we're called not to to run, he says, but to resist, not to cower in fear, but rather be courageous with confidence in who God is. And so we keep our head on our swivel that we're alert, right? We're we're always looking for an adversary um, so so that we can run, no, he says, so that we can resist. Like this looks like the regular spiritual disciplines in like Ephesians chapter six, right? Putting on the armor of God, right? The you know, breastplate of righteousness, like all these different things. Like, like it is gathering, it is reading God's word, it is prayer, it is community. That is how you resist this enemy. But to be clear, it's never, ever, ever to be done alone. Because right away when he's talking to these people who feel alone, who feel isolated, who feel like they could be picked off at any moment, who are part of small churches and even smaller towns far away from Rome in a culture that just seems like there's no way that that, that God could ever do anything to redeem it. I mean, you're watching the Roman Empire roll over nation after nation after nation and you're like, what what can our God do? I mean, mean, when, when Rome met our God, they just crucified him. And then he rose showing you who's ultimately in charge, right? They were not alone, they were part of, like, like he says, you are facing the same type of suffering that your brothers and sisters in Christ are facing all over the world. 
So whether it's, you know, uh, uh, 125 of us on a Sunday here, or you're at a big church with a thousand, or, or there's 15 a year, or, or, or whatever, big church, small church, little church, I want you to know that we are never alone because the church is part of a worldwide, history-spanning, culture-crossing, race-uniting family. That's what the church is. So you have more in common with your brothers and sisters in Christ in Ukraine or Burkina Faso or wherever than you might actually have with your neighbors who you share the same language, clothes, and Spotify account with. Like, he's saying, you want to remember what it's like to endure? He's like, I want you to know individual Christian in these individual churches. You're part of a network of churches. And he tells them, and he's telling us, that in the face of evil, whether it's the evil in the, in the mirror, whether it's the evil out in the world, that your response is to resist, to endure, to stand. And, and in doing so, he ties us to a global church that does, like I said, spans history, spans languages and continents and cultures. That you are never alone in the struggle. You have brothers and sisters around the world and, and those, those struggles and trials, he says the same type, yeah, but they might also be different. Tara and I, uh, a couple years ago, uh, we were up in, um, in uh, England and we're meeting with a bunch of just amazing church planners and pastors that were five, six, eight years in and their churches were like 40 people and they're getting ready to plant again because they're like, that's the biggest church in our town or we're the only church in our town. I'm like, oh man, that's so, that, man, they're enduring, that's amazing. And then we met this pastor from, from Turkey and, and he was kind of a little stressed out, but he's just like, yeah, you know, I'm kind of kind of nervous because uh, my nephew just became a Christian, but his dad, you know, uh, my, uh, my uh, relative, right, is still Muslim and so now he's worried that, that he's gonna get kicked out of the house or might suffer violence. They're suffering all around the world. And I don't want to, I mean, we can do the like, you know, I can show you pictures from West Africa, poor people, right, and all that stuff. But like, let's just be honest, whether you're in an affluent country or a poor country or whether you're in a country that has outright religious hostility or just the kind of, kind of just smooth secularism of Netflix, they were all suffering. Because I, I told him, I was like, man, we never deal with anything like that. And he goes, yeah, but you know, we don't have church splits. We don't have these issues you deal with here. We don't have, we don't have like, like, like we said, kind of that spiritual drowsiness. He said, so all suffering is suffering. So how do we respond? I mean, yeah, you're never alone in the struggle, but we're called to be rooted and resolved. And so we remember things like Peter was told by Jesus that the gates of hell are not going to prevail in the face of Jesus' church. That Jesus is declaring victory because he can. Because you read a verse like, the devil is prowling around like a lion, like that's terrifying. I want to run, I want to flee, and yet Peter's saying, no, resist him, stand up, be firm, be resolved, and you're like, what, what, are you, what is this? Are you just sending us on the beaches of Normandy to get mowed down by machine guns? Like this is absurd. He says, no, no, I can tell you to stand up. I can tell you to be resolved, to be to stand firm, because yeah, the devil's a lion that prowls around, but Jesus is the lion of Judah. He's the greater lion. You take out an apex predator with a greater apex predator. So we have a humble gospel confidence 
that yes, Scar loses in the end, right? Simba wins. Simba wins. It doesn't matter what your battle is, you have hope because the devil is a defeated enemy. So if it looks like it's not victory, it means the story's not done yet. If it doesn't look like good news yet, it means the story's not over. So we can be resolved because Christ is for us. We might see more challenges and battles ahead, but we have confidence because, like, I mean, I just, I I hate this phrase that I keep seeing going around. It's been around for most of my life, and you want to be on the right side of history. You want to be on the right side of Jesus because he's the author of history. When you're on the right side of Jesus, you know that you will always end up on the right side of history, no matter the judgment of the world that is walking away from him. Stand firm. He says this in verses 10 and 11, because I don't want to, like, it's awesome to be triumphant. Yes, Jesus wins, but again, let's be realistic about what we're going to face. 10 and 11. After you've suffered a little while, The God of all grace who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Man, this sounds a lot like 2 Corinthians 4, 17 where it says a light and momentary affliction is preparing us for the eternal way of glory. That that none of our suffering when we're going through it ever feels light. It never feels temporary. Here he says, after you've suffered a little while, you're like, how long's a little while? Because we're like a decade in on this one. We're like 15 years in on this one. We're a long time, is that a little while? Eternal perspective. In comparison to the weight of glory that is to come. That when we're suffering, we think it might be senseless, but Ultimately, it's purposeful and productive because it's preparing us to receive and carry, he says, an eternal weight of glory that isn't comparable when you consider its greatness. And I just want to be clear, like, this isn't a a call to, to, to not engage with grief. It's not a call to not process pain, for goodness sake. It's not a call to put a smile on your face even when things are terrible. But it's a call to understand that the glory and life that is to come eclipses our distress and affliction as in the rear view, they'll be seen as a little while. To not minimize or marginalize pain, but to maximize the glory of relationship and communion with God that will dwarf your despair. To not minimize pain, but to maximize God's glory that will dwarf your despair. He says that it's temporary. We always say that's good news because that too shall pass. But it's, it's not just temporary because the pain will pass. But because the destination is also good. The end of the story is good. And so our perspective of suffering impacts how we deal with it. And so I love these verses, these, kind of, these four words that they use to, to talk about the restoration that we'll feel uh, and engage with um, at the end of our suffering because uh, let's just be really, really honest. Suffering robs us of life. It robs you of relationships. Like pain caused ruins memories. Abuse cause ends relationships and destroys trust. That when we suffer, we experience loss of moments, of days, of seasons, of years. 
And, and, and then what happens is when we start to think about that loss, if we're not careful, it just takes us right to bitterness. I can't believe what they took from me. I can't believe I, I walked that way those years. How, they, they were wasted. How, how could I have done that? And then we just keep walking that way, looking back, wondering if what has been done to us or what we've done is what will define us rather than the destiny and the, and, and the final destination that we're called to. And so what he's saying here is as comprehensive as your pain, as your loss, as your suffering, anything it costs you to keep remaining faithful in the faith of unfaithful people or your, your own weakness or the sins that are done to you, anything that you've lost comprehensively, he's got an answer for. He says this, four words. Number one, restore. You will be made whole. We're not whole right now. We're walking wounded. But you will, we will be made whole. That all suffering has taken from you will be returned completely. It's not just that you're gonna get back to neutral, but you're no longer gonna feel like something is missing because it's gonna be fully restored. Number two, he says it's gonna be confirmed. That means your identity is secured. That you are not, in fact, like your suffering describes you, but it doesn't define you. That your identity is confirmed as a son and daughter of the king, not the sin you've done or the sin done to you. The true suffering, I mean, when you've suffered, doesn't it feel like you've been knocked down a peg? That you've lost some honor? That you've lost some status? Or that you just know you're not going to have some? Here he's saying, no, you're going to be confirmed and you're going to be given an eternal position of privilege and place of honor. Number three, he says, strengthen. Um, I don't know that that which doesn't kill you makes you stronger. I, I don't know. Because some suffering just makes you weaker. Makes you less able to endure again. Makes you like, I never want to go through that again or I don't think I can go on in joy, even when things are okay. Here, he says, you're gonna be strengthened. That when we lose vitality or ability to resist or endure, when we've, when, we've, when we've come to the end of ourselves, that that is where Christ meets us. That that's where the Holy Spirit comes to strengthen and equip us to continue to endure. You'll be strengthened. Number four, established. That we'll be deeply rooted where God has called us to be fruitful and flourishing. That your ultimate roots, that's why we said it's something that's not temporary. Your roots are in eternity. Your roots are in eternity where you're gonna be who you've always intended to have been by God's grace. That you'll be secure and you'll be immovable. And so I, I don't ever want and we shouldn't tell one another, enjoy pain. Yeah, you're suffering. It's not as bad as so-and-so. No, no, no. Grieve the loss. Acknowledge what's missing. And then look forward to what has come. What will happen? Never forget who's in charge. This last phrase is on these verses. Who's in charge? To him be the dominion. How long? Forever and ever. Amen. May it be so. That's the end of that prayer for, that Peter has for the church. And then these last verses as we close are this kind of, kind of greeting and reminder of, of what's true. And 
says this. Last verses in 1 Peter 12 through 14. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring what is the true grace of God. He says it again stand firm in it. Stand firm in the grace of God. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. So he's writing to these churches, and he's like, hey, I'm calling out one of my brothers who's super faithful. There's another guy, Mark, right? Like, this is, this is great. He's like, wants people to know that there's individuals in the church that he knows whose stories he's heard, who he's praying for, and he's saying individually and collectively, you individuals stand firm, be resolved. You as a church stand firm and be resolved. You as a network of churches stand firm and be resolved. And then he says, hey, to, to, you, to she who's in Babylon, I can't even say it, to she who's in Babylon sends you greetings. And you're like, whoa, hold the phone. What the heck does that mean? Um, so here's what's cool. We'll talk a lot about Babylon in the fall. When I come back, we've already prepared a sermon series um, uh, called Life in Exile, Life for Eternity in the Book of Daniel. What Babylon is and was was the center politically of that nation that opposed God. And so the she who's in Babylon he's referring to is actually the church in Rome, right? The church is the bride of Christ. He says the church who's in Rome except he calls her the she who's in Babylon. I mean, what's he doing there? Rome then was the center of the world government that was opposed to God. But he says she who's in Babylon. Well, at that time for those people, they already knew Babylon was in ruins. What he's saying is you can stand firm because as strong as Rome seems, what's Rome now? Ruins. Anytime you are anxious, about the world around us. He says, no, no, as strong as it may seem, there's a church in those places that will endure for eternity while those cities and those governments and those nations are in ruins. For the church that's in Babylon, for the people of God in Babylon, for the people of God in Rome, for the people of God in China, for the people of God, God in Nazi Germany, and for the people of God in America. They will all be no more. He reigns. The church will endure. And Jesus is coming back. And that is where our hope is so we can be rooted because Christ is in us. We can be resting because we're in Christ and we can be resolved because Christ is for us. Standing firm, rooted in the gospel. No matter what happens, he says here, right, greet one another with love, that our call in the midst of all adversity, whether it's this summer or fall or or forever, how long, like keep being warm and hospitable and welcoming to people coming in who are looking for good news. To Lord willing, give them good news about a God who's greater than what they see on the news or what's happening in their individual lives. To continue to stand firm is, like, you know, what does that mean? Like, are we, are we charging a building? Like, no, please don't do that. To stand firm is going to be to stay faithful in the simple acts of discipleship. Here at Mercy Fellowship, we, we, have, we have defined those as gathering, giving, 
growing and going on mission, to just remain faithful in the midst of whatever's coming, knowing that our peace is in Christ, that we have a humble confidence, humble because we know how weak we are, gospel, we can have it with joy because the gospel's good news, and with confidence that we know where our strength is found, that we can rest in a God who's big enough to carry us as we continue to trust Jesus. Um, that's the end of our sermon, but that's not the end of our time of what we're, we're doing here. I, there's this verse here. Uh, I want to call up the Ballingers, the Cosmos, uh, and the Mathesons, um, if they would come up on stage, the band as well. There's this verse here in verse 12, by Sylvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him. Um, I want, as a church, to acknowledge um, the fact that, that, like, I know, like, this is a time of a, a lot of migration, right? People moving in and out of regions, uh, all sorts of stuff. Um, that there are some brothers and sisters in Christ here that are coming up on stage. Man, there's a lot of you guys uh, uh, that are coming up on stage. And um, actually, hey, Anna, can you grab those bags and give one to each couple over here? That's great. Um, that I want to acknowledge that these are brothers and sisters in Christ that I personally, and I know that the church here in the Puget Sound regards as faithful. That these three families, um, man, you guys represent uh, a gospel legacy. You got three generations uh, represented here. Um, in the next um, week, in the next month or two or three, all, all three of these families that are all related, um, Ted and Cindy and then, um, Heather and Melanie are their kids, and, and um, they're all moving to Florida. Hooray! Yeah, okay. Uh, we'll clap in a second. Uh, not for Florida, we'll clap for you guys. Um, the church of Jesus in the Puget Sound has been blessed for, you're looking at decades of faithfulness here. Ted and Cindy raised their daughters in the Lord. Ted has painted like every church building from Tacoma to, to, to Mount Vernon, right? If, if you see anything here that's no longer purple, Ted probably did it. So we thank you for that, Ted. Thank you for being the one that eliminates purple. It's a big, big thing here. Um, raised their daughters to know and love and serve Jesus. And have said, hey, we want to be in discipleship and, and in church with our kids and grandkids. That's, this is a beautiful picture of multi-generational discipleship right here. Maybe you're the first Christian in your family. Maybe your family's super jacked up and they went to weird churches. You're like, I don't even want to deal with that anymore. You have an opportunity right now as an individual, as a couple, as a family, or whatever, to be part of gospel legacies that echo into eternity. Mel and Ryan, um, you guys met Sermon and Kids, right? At some point, or you guys met at, no, no, I got it wrong, disregard. Blind date, worked out well. Yeah, yeah, worked out super well. Um, served at multiple churches um, here in the Puget Sound. They've been with us for the last three and a half years. Um, if it wasn't for them, we would not have Mercy Kids um, after um, COVID hit. So let's give them a round of applause for that, for sure. Just been serving. What that means is we need new and more leadership and people to step up in Mercy Kids, but you guys are going to be missed for sure. Jeremy and Heather. Jeremy and Heather were the first couple to come to a small group that I ever led, and they must have had really low expectations because they stuck around for 14 years uh, in all that. Um, they have been some of our best friends. Um, uh, our kids love your kids. 
Um, like there's just like every Tuesday night for like over a decade or more, we're getting together and sharing each other's life and, and praying. Um, and they've both uh, um, served in kids, security, um, work parties, just a decade and a half of faithfulness to this church for sure. And so um, we got you guys some, some gifts. Tara told me not to say what's in them, but um, there's some cool stuff from the Northwest. And, um, and, uh, and then you're all going to get some Chick-fil-A too, because that's Jesus chicken. So um, we're super excited for that. Like, it's hard to get, like you're leaving. Uh, and, um, and it's small enough that the mouses are flying out tomorrow. Um, so I think it'll fit in your carry-on. You might have to leave one of your cats and get a Florida cat uh, while you're down there. So um, I just want to pray for these guys. But, but first, I just, I just want to like, I just want to give them another hand because they're so amazing. They've been so instrumental in the life of our church. So thank you guys so much for who you are and being faithful. Um, If you want, you can stand. Um, You can reach a hand out uh, while we're praying uh, for them. I'll pray for them. And then uh, then we're going to give our tithes and offerings and we're going to take communion. We're going to sing and grab our kids. Let me pray for you guys. Father in heaven. God, it is amazing how you work in and through our lives. Lord, that you take us uh, as just imperfect people and you change us and you shape us. And Lord, I just thank you that for the impact and the legacy that these three families are leaving here in the Northwest. And Lord, I just pray that the blessing that they've been to us and to, excuse me, so many churches here in the Puget Sound, that they would be an equal blessing to the church uh, down in Florida. Well, there's so many people moving down there. They're going to need faithful brothers and sisters in Christ to help encourage and strengthen and renew churches down there. Lord, I pray that this move, uh, while parting is such sweet sorrow, Lord, that we would long for that reunion day. We're all together in one table, in one church. Lord, I thank you so much for who you are. I thank you so much for the faithfulness of these families. Lord, they're dear to my heart. They're dear to the hearts of of this church and, and really so many other churches in this area. They will be deeply, deeply missed. God, you're good to us. You're good for us. Lord, I pray for safe travels for them. Lord, I pray for those who are going to arrive here, who are going to serve and step up and and lead and serve in different capacities um, because God, <laughs> people on the stage are leaving a hole in, our, in, in, in the organization, but, but mostly in our hearts. Lord, we love them. Lord, we love you in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. All right.